Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you all. And uh, we are going to carry on. I've got everything in the wrong place, but it's going to be okay. We're preaching from the book of Revelation, which is the book at the very end of your Bible. And we're looking at the two chapters where Jesus writes letters to the churches. And we're going to try and learn some lessons from those letters. This is the fourth letter to the church in Teatira, or Tyatira. Well, you can count how many times I say it differently throughout. And this morning's message is actually a bit radical. It's a bit different. It is contrary to what actually I feel our city would hold as high values. So if you have found yourself here and maybe you're not quite sure why you're here, maybe you're here to kind of explore the claims and teachings of Christ, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christ follower, this message may feel a little bit scratchy. I'd encourage you to stick around and listen to the why, because the why is the most important part. But let me jump in to the letter now that I've built some anticipation for what's going to come. Tyatira was a small industrial city in what is now modern day Turkey. And Jesus tells them to write this. Uh, So it's Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Tyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your works are great, your last works are greater than your first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I'll throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Teatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I'm not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I'll give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I've received this from the Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this book of Revelation is a little bit complicated. There's some symbolism going on, but also the plain reading of the text is really helpful to us as well. So I'm going to explain some stuff as we go. And 
the first part of the letter is Jesus drawing attention to this city, two specific aspects of who he is. He draws attention to their eyes, that, to his eyes, that he has got fiery eyes. And what he's kind of saying is, I've got laser vision. I can see everything. And later on we heard that he can see our hearts and our minds, which is a little bit scary. But then he goes on to say he's also got bronze feet, polished bronze feet. And this is a a picture that you also read in the Old Testament in Daniel and Ezekiel. They also see pictures of, of God and he has bronze feet. And what it represents is his authority. That his authority, his kingship, his lordship is ultimate. And it kind of speaks to the promises at the end that one day he'll judge everything. But why it's specific to this city of Tyratira is that it was a very industrial city and one of the big kind of things they produced was polished bronze. It's a bit like maybe Jesus walking in here in an Ajax shirt. When they would have heard polished bronze, they'd have thought, ah, he knows us. He gets us. But what was also significant is this polished bronze was mostly used for Roman armory. So they were making it, they were kind of working for their, for their oppressors, for their overlords. And so Jesus, the fact that he has got bronze feet, that it represents authority, he's reaffirming the fact that one day he will be in full authority. He's gonna release them. Uh, from the oppression they're in. So it would have been such an encouraging thing to hear that Jesus has got bronze feet. And then Jesus goes on to give them high praise for their works. He says, I see your love, your faithfulness, your service, and your endurance. And actually, as I look out, I see people in our community who I would commend the same things to. I love being part of this church. And, and Jesus says that I see actually you're growing in this. Your, your latter works are greater than your former ones. And I feel like we're growing in this as well as a community. But then Jesus gives a warning that he sees not only their good works, but he sees that they are tolerant of something that he feels they shouldn't be. And actually, this is the wrong kind of tolerance. This is an unloving tolerance. Because tolerance isn't amoral, without morals. That tolerance is, um, because we don't want to tolerate criminals, do we? We don't want to tolerate evil. We don't really tolerate hypocrites. And Jesus is saying that when he's speaking to the Christ followers in this church, that they were living a contradiction that they were being tolerant of things they shouldn't be. They were saying that they were living with Jesus as one Lord, but their life was showing something different. And he's pulling this out uh, by saying that they were tolerant of Jezebel. And Jezebel is a reference to an Old Testament character, a little bit like last week's message, It was the same thing. There was a reference to an Old Testament character called Balaam, and he had a donkey. This letter is referring to Jezebel, and it's not, it's assumed that Jezebel isn't actually one woman, but is probably a group of leaders in the church, um, or on the fringes of the church. And 
What Jezebel, why, why the reference is significant, Jezebel appears in two kings. She was an, a queen uh, to Ahab and she leads God's people astray. She leads the Israelite nation to worship other gods and to worship other idols. And in 2 Kings 9 we can read, um, kind of someone comments, uh, Joram to Jehu, uh, Joram says, do you come in peace, Jehu? And he answers, what peace can there be as long as there is so much prostitution and sorcery from your mother Jezebel? So this reference to Jezebel is to an evil lady who was causing people to compromise. What was she teaching? We think she was teaching that actually compromise is okay. Maybe even compromise is necessary. And in certain respects, compromise is saying, God's way sounds nice. You know, I like this, but actually it doesn't quite work in the real world, and I need to tweak some parts of it. I just need to have Jesus, but I just need to adapt a couple of things so that I can do life in the way we do life now. And in this letter... There are two things, one which isn't so obvious, which I'll explain. Two things, two areas of compromise for this church, and they were in business and in sex. And how they were compromising in business, well, I said it was an industrial town. And the way the industry worked back then, and it's not dissimilar today, was that everyone who was a tradesperson was part of a trades guild or a trades union. I used to be a chartered management accountant. That was kind of my affiliation. That's what gave me authority. That's, you know, before I got paid a little bit, when I became qualified, people trusted me more. I'd done some exams. It's a bit like if you wanted to be uh, a taxi driver today, two choices. You can join the union or the trade guild of Uber and everyone's going to trust you, or you can go out on your own and, you know, ask people if they want to ride. Well, actually, no one's really going to trust you. That's kind of the social pressure these tradespeople were under, that they had to be part of a guild. Now, guilds aren't wrong. Trades unions aren't wrong or evil in and of themselves. But in Tyratira, what was happening and what was common across Uh, these cities that we've been reading about is these guilds weren't just guilds but they were temples that the guild had um, it, it would be almost like a religious meeting they would come in and they would have a feast and they'd offer their food uh, to the deity or the god um, who wasn't the Christian god in most cases it was Apollo and they would kind of pray to Apollo and they'd worship him. And then there'd be this big feast, uh, lots of drinking, and probably ending in debauchery and orgies. And hence you get business and sex being areas of compromise for these people. But you can kind of understand why they would do it, because there was serious financial pressure, societal pressure. Unless I become part of this guild, how can I possibly make a living? Unless I participate, people are just going to think I'm crazy. But, and it's likely that what Jezebel 
or whoever Jezebel represents, what they were saying was that actually compromise is okay. It's okay to be part of the guild because that's just business, right? But you can also be a Christ follower. But what Jesus is saying is no. This is not good tolerance. This is deception and it's compromise. It's saying that they were living like Jesus is the one they want to follow, but they were actually following visibly kind of following other gods and idols at the same time. Now Matt preached into idols and idolatry and and how in business and in our work life this can be a challenge and we had a fantastic discussion about it at our community group this week where we began to kind of tease out how sometimes we can be um, fearful of not getting the promotion unless we kind of help ourselves a little bit and you know maybe make some of these tweaks and compromises but to begin to get a bigger picture of actually God is our provider. He's the one who can give us peace at work. He's the one who can provide for us. We don't just have to play the game. Anyway, I encourage you to listen back to Matt's preach last week if you didn't hear it. So they were compromising in business, but they were also compromising in sex. Verse 21, Jesus sees that Jezebel was deceiving them into sexual immorality. Now, even those words, sexual immorality, feels like a bit of an affront to what would be preached in Amsterdam. That actually, I think in Amsterdam, uh, tolerance is a really high value. And, And I love much of it. I really do. I saw a guy running through the Vondel Park barefoot, feeding birds as he went. And I thought, I love that he feels free to do that in our city. You know, it's the city that embraces all sorts of things, and that's wonderful. totally lost my place here. (laughs) I was picturing that guy. It really was joyful. (laughs) Okay. What Amsterdam preaches is that sex is just sex. It's mostly physical, possibly a bit emotional. That actually, love is love. You love who you want. That actually, we need to be true to ourselves. That's what it means to be authentic. That, but actually the Bible says there's more to love than just attraction. It says that there's more to sexual desire and expression. So much more. And a lot of what we kind of live under, what, the, what Amsterdam preaches is, is kind of the ripple effects of the 60s sexual revolution where people began to say and and kind of proclaim that we're all made sexual and we should express that however we want and whenever we want. That actually there's a feeling that today if you're not having sex however you want and whenever you want, then you're living a bit of a weird life. We need to be understanding and we need to be tolerant of each other and we need to see our freedom This is what Amsterdam says, our freedom is true to being who I am and what I want. And it's a very, very compelling story. But actually, it's not been working. And this isn't me speaking from the Bible now, but um, lots of scientific report and study has been done that now says that actually this kind of sexual revolution has resulted in people having less sex 
And this isn't correlated, but it is related. And actually, we are less happy and more anxious than we've ever been before. And there's a sense that the freedom we've adopted, you know, that sense of I want to be free to be me, is harming us. I see it easily when my kids go to a party and there's a bowl of sweets. It's an imperfect analogy. But they see a bowl of sweets and they just want to keep eating. They love it. And very quickly they are feeling nauseous. Because they don't kind of know when to stop. And often when we're our own reference point, we can lose an anchor on when is it right to start, when is it right to stop. And I'm wanting to kind of compel us that we need to know what God, our creator, our designer, says about sex, about how we should live. And this is a bit of a high-level overview. I'm going to give some kind of headings. And it might feel a bit uncomfortable. It might be some things you've never heard and are a bit shocking. I'd encourage you to hang out and listen for the why. At the beginning of the book, in Genesis 2, God sets it out so clearly and so starkly. He makes man in his image, he makes woman in his image, and he says that they're going to leave their father and their mother, and they're going to be joined and become one flesh. He's saying that sex was made within the safety and the intimacy of heterosexual marriage. And then, kind of throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we see that the Bible says we it prohibits uh, incest, adultery, prostitution, fornication, which is that old English word that means sex outside of marriage. It prohibits uh, rape and homosexuality and bestiality. And then Paul comes in Ephesians and he kind of drives it even broader and deeper because he uses this Greek word that means that we translate sexual immorality and the Greek word is porneia, which is where we get our word pornography from. And so Paul is saying he doesn't want any hint of, of porneia or impurity amongst the church. It's very easy to compromise and kind of believe the lie that porn doesn't hurt anyone. But Jesus then takes it a step deeper and a step broader. And he says that actually lust equals adultery. That actually this I, that if we define lust as wanting, as having a sexual desire for another person, Jesus says that's the same thing as actually committing adultery with them, having sex with them. Let's read Matthew 5, 27. Jesus' words, he says, you've heard that it was set, said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And earlier we read that Jesus sees our hearts. He examines our minds. And so Jesus is leading us here to an extraordinarily profound point The compromise isn't always about what we're doing. It's often about what we're thinking first. And you might be thinking, sitting here thinking, this preach isn't quite for me. Well, I want to say, 
Jesus disagrees. He's challenging the way we think about sex. He's challenging us to reflect on it. Is it consuming our thoughts? Are we believing that sex is God's gift to be used as he lovingly instructed us? And this is a challenge whether we're married or whether we're not married. And this is a hard word. This is not what Amsterdam would be preaching. And this is one where we kind of want to say, surely Jesus doesn't mean it. He, he, surely it's not quite this, but there's some room here to interpret it differently, make a few tweaks, but he really does mean it. And we've got to get to the why. Why is he saying this? And it's because he has something better for us. So you can picture that bowl of sweets again and actually Jesus is wanting to lift our gaze to something better than sweets. Because the Bible has a positive view of singleness. It has a high view of celibacy and of marriage. You know, it doesn't say that marriage is, is kind of heaven and not marriage is hell. Christ is not anti-sex. He, God is not anti-sex. He made it and he sees it as a good thing in a conventional heterosexual marriage relationship. But this is where he wants to lift our gaze because what the Bible says is that human intimacy is always a shadow of intimacy with Jesus. This is the bigger thing. It's a picture of the relationship we're meant to have with Jesus. And this is the case whether we're married or whether we're not, that actually married or not married, neither state will be 100% fulfilling. A married life is to be, living, to be living examples of Jesus' marriage to the church. A single life is to be an example of devoted and loving pursuit of Christ. Glyn Harrison, who wrote an excellent book on this topic, he says that the Christian vision for sex and relationships isn't something that we have discovered within ourselves or constructed for ourselves. Our creator revealed it to us. For Christians, true human flourishing isn't found in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, but in living in harmony with our true identity. We want to be living in harmony with our true identity. And, and this is a challenge. This is challenge, a challenge for, for married people to keep having sex. It's a challenge for not married people to not have sex. It's a challenge for all of us to be going deeper into our identity in Christ and who he's made us to be. There are lots and lots of temptations for us. When I married my wife, I decided that she was gonna be my standard of beauty. And then I went outside and lived in a culture that has different standards of beauty where a media uh, is, is full of images. And so my standard of beauty is constantly being challenged. And in Paul's words to Timothy, he encourages us to see older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. He encourages us to see one another as family. And so my encouragement, what I want to keep growing in it is and I'll encourage you to as well, is we don't want to objectify one another. We don't want to see one another as sexual objects, but as family. 
with absolute purity. Jesus invites us into his family and this is part of how he meets our needs as well. That he invites us into his church family to belong here, that we are meant to be brothers and sisters. It's meant to be part of God's better story for us. Often we can see our immediate family as the place of belonging and that can be helpful but there's times where this family here should be even stronger as a sense of, as a place of belonging. Now this isn't a quick fix. It requires meaningful commitment to community. That's why we have our community groups. And this is for everyone, for whole families, for singles, for single parents, for children, for people who are dating, for people who aren't in a relationship yet. We are meant to be family to one another. But friendship takes a while. Sam Albury, who has been living as a celibate single for many decades, he says that it can take up to 10 years for a place to feel like home and to be known there. So, Jesus warns us not to compromise with sex. And then he encourages us that we need to repent and we need to hold on. How do we do this? Because this is a call to live differently. This is a call not to compromise, but to turn and to stay turned. We'll be tempted to turn back, but to stay turned and keep going in the direction he's calling us to. And I'm aware that different people in this room will be in very different places. Some will be saying, I didn't know this stuff. This is new to me. And you might want to go and read this book a bit more. You might need to convince your head and your heart a bit more that this is truth. I understand that. Some of us here might say, actually, we're damaged. And in a sense, we're all damaged by sin. But some of us have been burnt or hurt, have had things done to us or have made poor choices that just lead us to lack hope in this area. And maybe you've tried and you've not seen any fruit Maybe you're here and you just, maybe you'd say you're disillusioned. Not that damaged, but just disillusioned. You've tried and it's not really working. Or maybe you're determined that you're committed to this book and you're going to try and you're going to, uh, maybe you've seen some victory. Well, to, to kind of all four of you, I'd say these are Jesus' words to hold on and this is the key way to do it. And it's to cast your mind back to kind of Jesus' fiery eyes that he sees us with, that he cuts to our hearts with. His eyes are full of love. They're full of love for us. And uh, uh, Henry Nguyen, who was a Catholic priest, so again, committed to celibacy, he writes this. When faced with temptation, he says, every time you choose another door, be it the door of immediate satisfaction, the door of distracting entertainment, the door of busyness, the door of guilt and worry, or the door of self-rejection, you commit yourself to go deeper in your heart and thus deeper into the heart of God. So loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus is the Christ follower's journey towards fulfillment. And it requires daily choices, daily choices to believe that he loves us, to believe that his word is true. 
to recognize as well that actually what we're looking for as individuals is much deeper than sexual expression or romantic love or intimacy with one another, and these are good things, but what we're looking for is divine love, and this is only found in Jesus. And I want to read some verses over us, some verses to us, and these are things that Jesus would want you to hear. If you're a Christ follower today, he says that he sees us and knows us like no one else. He would say that I'm your most beloved companion. It's Jesus' desire to overwhelm you with his love. I chose you when I planned creation. Nothing you've ever done can separate you from my love. Your creation was not a mistake. I'm healing all wounds and brokenness of your heart. I'll never stop doing good for you. I will never, no, never leave you nor abandon you. You're my treasured possession and no one loves you like me. This is what Jesus would say to, he'd want to say it to all of us. If you've not met him yet, this is a picture of Jesus I'd love for you to leave with. That he's the most loving person you can ever encounter. And as we decide to live this way, to look at Jesus, we're deciding to live a life without compromise. And there's an expression in poker to go all in. I want to encourage us to go all in. It's when you you push all your chips to the middle of the table and you say, okay, this is it. I'm leaving myself with nothing else. I've got no plan B. And as Christ followers... That's the choice we already made. And all I'm doing is encouraging us to keep making daily choices. We made one big big decision followed by lots of smaller ones. There'll always be a temptation to compromise. And often it's because we don't want to lose our choice, because we don't want to lose plan B. But actually we can find that it undermines our authority, it undermines our ability to live well. We might think that if we don't do this, we're going to be cut off. We, if we don't appear tolerant, then we'll lose our voice or maybe even our job. Or maybe we'll lose who we really are. But these are all things that God promises to give us. He promises to give us f- fulfillment. He promises to give us good works, to give us provision, and to give us a deep, deep identity in him. So we can be left asking, can we trust him completely? Or do we just need to make a bit of a way where we can tweak things as we go? Is it is the only real way to live life, to live it with compromises? Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying that as soon as we're seduced and compromised, actually we lose our authority. And that's what we saw happen with Jezebel and those that follows her. Very negative consequences to their compromise. And Jesus in his kind of concluding promise to those who overcome, he says that we get to participate in the ruling of nations with him. So I'm concluding now that if you're here and you'd say you're a Christ follower, I'm hoping that you've heard that Jesus sees, 
that his eyes are fiery, that they're like lasers, but they're like lasers that see into our hearts, but can then do laser surgery on us and heal us. That Jesus loves us, that he wants to help us in every area of life. That he knows what's best for us, that he says, come my way and flourish. That our sins are forgiven that we can keep learning his way, that we can live with decreasing compromise, that there is hope and he wants to give us power to change. He wants to help us change. So in many respects, this preach is is an invitation to bring every area of our lives to Jesus. Bring it in front of his gaze. Let him look into our hearts and mind and do his surgery and see that he can fulfill every area of our life that even if we uh, every area of life includes our sexual frustrations and our compromises you know if you're living in a dark cave you can either try and chase away the darkness or push it out or you can invite the light in will you look to Jesus today will you look to his eyes will you choose to trust him 100% above all else to let trust in him, show us how to live, trust him for work, trust him for our identity, and trust him to help us live without compromise. Can I invite you to stand? The band are gonna come back. I'm gonna pray for us quickly and then Matt will take us into communion. Yeah, Jesus, we want to look to you and I'm aware that there are some amongst us who wouldn't say they know you yet and I thank you Jesus that your invitation to them right now is to look to you as well to see you for who you are Jesus I thank you that you have penetrating x-ray vision that knows me as I am and yet chooses to love me and call me to live a different life And I want to pray for your Holy Spirit empowering on each one of us that we'd go here knowing Jesus is with us, that he's for us, that he can help us. Amen.